This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. So glad you could join us today. My guest is Elaine Taylor Klaus, founder of Impact Parents, a master certified coach. She coaches parents and professionals in dealing with uh, the complexities of ADD, Asperger's, autism, depression, anxiety, all those things that go on with ADHD. And today we'll be talking about girls and autism, ADHD, the combination, particularly the the uh, problem of late diagnosis and misdiagnosis, which is something all of us in the field are struggling to understand and figure out. So, Elaine, welcome to the program. Glad to have you back. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to spend time thinking and learning with you. I appreciate that. So, uh, how did how did the I guess the topic or the the encounters you had lead you to looking at gee, we're missing something here. Uh, you know, I think it's because I had so many clients who we kept saying there's something missing here. Um, mm. You know, and personally, I was a parent of a of several complex kids, but one particularly complex where where I found myself saying, "Yeah, but we're still missing something." You know, yeah, but there's yes, I know there's there's ADHD and anxiety, and know there's learning disabilities. There's something missing. And and then in the last couple of years, I began to notice a similar pattern with my clients. And, and I, I often say that that I work with our company, Impact Parents works with parents of complex kids. I tend to end up working with a lot of parents of very complex kids, right? They're really more complicated mm-hmm. where there's there's kind of something missing. Those are the people who often end up in, in on my Zoom screen. And um, and I was I had the fortune of being invited by Dr. Thomas Brown to to join him as a panel presentation at, at AppSart a couple of years ago, and he asked me to do some case studies, and so that called me to come back and look at my doc of clients over the last several years, and and I began to see patterns, and I began to to notice similarities. And, and notice how many clients I had wh- who were very complex kids, where it turned out that there was, it was a pattern of kids, mostly girls, mostly teenage girls, whose, um, whose diagnosis that they were being treated for primarily wasn't really addressing enough of the need. And mm-hmm. When I started looking into it, I began to to notice all of these things these kids had in common. And, you know, the spoiler alert is that I began to start sending my clients back for reevaluation because I saw the commonalities. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when, you know, from my lens, I know what a complex kid with ADHD and learning disabilities or anxiety, whatever looks like. And when, 
when you have a, a parent whose kid is an outlier in that space, it was mm-hmm. a real clear opportunity to say, let's let's go back and look and see if there's something else. And one by one by one, mm-hmm. all of these teenage girls were then now under the the current diagnostic criteria diagnosed with with what some people would call high functioning autism. I like the term Asperger's, but but we're diagnosed with autism in retrospect now in a way that they couldn't have been diagnosed before. Right. Now, what were the problems or the what was showing up that still wasn't getting addressed, was still too much of a challenge, even though the treatment seemed to be optimized for what it Okay, this is what we're going to do for ADD and all those things. Maybe they were treated for ADD. Maybe they were treated for OCD. But there was, you know, they were being treated, actively treated. Um, But what I began to see as some of the common threads were uh, there was often extreme attachment to one parent, sometimes at the Hmm. sometimes at the resistance of another parent. Um, But I, I don't. I'd have to go back and think it was usually not an extreme attachment to both parents. It was usually one parent where there was this, there was kind of a push me, pull you. There was a, I, I hate you. I need you intensity mm-hmm. that was, it was bigger. You know, that old book, um, I hate you. Will you, will you drive me to the mall? It wasn't that casual teenage thing. It was much, yeah. much more yeah. intense. So there was an extreme attachment to one parent to the point where that parent didn't feel like they could go out. They couldn't leave. They could barely go to work. Mm. Um, There was just this um, almost obsessive need for the parent to be there. And in in hindsight, on some level, they were using the parent to co-regulate to an extreme extent. Okay. Sometimes there was a resistant to the other parent, but not always. But sometimes there was a mm-hmm. very, I, you know, he's he's dead to me. I need you, mom. That was yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing I noticed that was happening a lot was that there was always some kind of a sleep thing going on where oftentimes parents weren't sleeping in their own beds or kids were sleeping on the floor next to their parents or parents were being called upon to sleep in the kid's room or there was just, there was Mm -hmm. some interruption of what you would consider typical sleeping patterns. And that was much more common in these families than I saw in in the other complex families that I was supporting uh, where, Mm -hmm. where these issues weren't at play. Um, What else? As I said, early early, treatment from a very had started at a very early age for all of these kids, but it typically focused on one diagnosis or a a clump of diagnoses to the exclusion of others. So Um, early age in elementary school? No, preschool, early, like may have started as early as three, four or five years old. Um, and I know in my own circumstance, my child's first yeah. psych ed evaluation was done. They were about five years old. Because okay. by that point, we had already been to several preschools. Like, like it was hard yeah. by two. Mm-hmm. And so we were finally getting an evaluation by about five. Um, but that okay. was common in all of these families is that these, these issues didn't start showing up at seven or eight years old. They started showing up much, much earlier. 
Um, and, and sometimes there were conflicting diagnoses. So um, multiple providers with, you know, one saying this kid's got ADD and one saying this kid's got autism and one saying this kid's, you know, like attachment disorder. And, um, mm-hmm. and so conflicting diagnoses, which left the parents with a lack of clarity about what are we really treating here? What are we really trying to help and support? Mm-hmm. So that was pretty common. Um, there was a common theme of what I would call emotionally eruptive behaviors, um, extremely emotionally dependent, but also volatile. Uh, in, in the yeah. autism realm, they call it mood storms. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it was less typical to see that in girls than in boys. Like in boys, you would see that and might, my question whether that's on the autism spectrum, but because it shows up a little differently in girls, girls are maybe less likely to tear up a room, but more likely yeah. to to become really eruptive and then to beat themselves up, to to turn that mm-hmm. eruption on Just themselves. Turn it. Yeah, um, I don't deserve to live. I don't deserve to be here. I, you know, um, becoming really almost mm-hmm. self self blaming. In the, in the wake of an eruption. Um, but, but this emotionally there's, there's meltdown and then there's eruption. And it's one thing to be emotionally yeah. dysregulated as a lot of kids with ADHD are, mm-hmm. um, but there's something else to be eruptive where there's just these kind of explosions that these kids can't control. Um, and then the, the unifying theme, and this is consistent with all kids with autism, not just girls, was is sensory issues. Um, a lot of sensory issues from an early age, uh, you know, different kinds of dysregulation, but often a reactivity, whether it's to sound or sight or light or people. That's or, true. Mm-hmm. You know, all kinds of sensory kinds of things. Um, and then there's this subtle thing. You and I were talking about subtleties earlier before we started this recording. The subtle piece that I noticed is a lot of these kids, I would I began to call them wanderers. Because when the kids would get saturated, they would leave. They would walk out of a classroom. They would walk away from camp. And I had m- several kids who would literally walk all the way home. And they weren't uh, mm-hmm. running away. They were actually yeah. leaving and going home because they were done. They were saturated. Yeah, overwhelmed um, with stimulation and everything else. But they kind wouldn't stop to say to a teacher, I need help or I've got to get out of here. Or, I need a quiet room or what. Now we have things like quiet spaces and we, we have ways to help yeah. kids in, in school environments. But But not that many years ago, these kids would just literally walk out of a classroom and down the hall and out the door. Mm. Um, or they would get into lots of fights or com- combative kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. But more likely, there. they were they were as as I say, I call them the wanderers, and I began to see this theme. And um, and then the last thing I would say, I guess, two more things. One is um, these kids very often wanted social connection, but it was extremely difficult for them. Mm-hmm. They did want it, but they just didn't yeah. know how to be in social dynamics. Um, I remember yeah. this one girl who um, just, it was 
every week when I was talking to the parents, it was always about Girl Scouts and the complications and difficulties of trying to help this kid be in Girl Scouts. Inevitably, the parent is the Girl Scout leader because these parents are often taking leadership roles so that their kids can be in social settings. Right. So they can be present there. Right. Right. So they're either coaching the the team or they're Girl Scout leader or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the kids do want a social connection. They just don't know how. Um, And then there's also often a history of the kid being bullied. Um, But I think Mm. there's a lot there's a lot that we could say about it because these kids, sometimes they're the bullies and sometimes they're getting bullied. But very often that's that's an extension of that social disconnection piece. Yeah, can't defend yourself or don't know how to. Right. Deal with someone that makes you feel uncomfortable, so get aggressive or whatever. Or you may feel like you're being being bullied, and it's because you're not reading the social cues, and you don't really realize. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of pieces that play into that. But but these are all. I began to see this in this whole group of clients to such an extent that I actually picked up the phone and called a client from about ten years ago because I was so remembering her child who was like all these other girls. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I called her and I found her and we got on the phone and the kid was now 22, 23 years old. And I said, you know, tell me about where she is. And she had finally gotten an autism diagnosis. And I mean, and it was just, it was absolutely consistent. And now the college version of that. Um mm very often uh, playing more with boys than with girls because I think boys are socially less demanding than girls. So she had, by college, had gotten into kind of, she was one of the guys. Um, But sometimes there's also some sexual acting out that happens later that Mm -hmm. it's different kind of sensory seeking. Um, I'm not as as familiar with that. If I stay focused on these girls that that I'm really speaking to, there were all these consistencies, almost almost all of them ended up in either treatment programs, hospitalization for a time, mm. some kind of a therapeutic really environment. Extreme. Yeah. Um, because uh, by the I time wanna... they figured out the autism, it was it was as a result of being yes. hospitalized. A bunch of right. I wanted to return to one thing and and uh looking at things that I have uh the sensory issues which in everything I'd seen up in certainly 10 from 18 years ago when I started in this practice, uh, sensory issues were often um, considered to be part of ADHD. And I think that may be something that, I don't know, it's a variation of ADHD, but maybe that was a, a clue that we weren't picking up that there is something else that maybe the sensory issues, partly that, but really some elements of the uh, sensitivity. And I, I think of um, certainly a lot of people, I think, with ADHD are very sensitive to noise yes. and sound. I don't think anyone with ADD can ignore a single conversation that's happening nearby. If there are multiple ones, fine. But a single one, there's that there's listening yeah, kind of. So it's hard to process two well, conversations at once. But so, the, the, 
So can I speak to that? Because you just said something that's really interesting. There's there's sensory in terms of overwhelm, which I think you see a lot in, in yeah. ASD. Um, there's yeah. sensory in terms of distractibility that I think you see more in ADHD. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think a lot of kids with ADHD do have sensory issues. And, but, and but the manifestation that. of it is different. With ADHD, mm-hmm. I may have a hard time with that line in my socks because I can't think about anything else because the lines in the sock is bothering mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. which is very different from uh, I I can't be with wearing socks. Too, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, or or I can't stand that you're that you're eating so loudly. I can't be with it. It's different from yeah, I yeah. can't hear what's happening over here because I, I'm distracted by the sound. Yeah. And same behavior, the, uh, different uh, reason for it. Right. And I think that the overwhelm is the part that's different. Um you know, I, I think of uh I look at yeah, there's this sensitivity to a bit's texture of clothes or uh, sometimes textures of food. Um, and then I tell parents and the teenager, whoever, that uh, your emotions are also sensitive too, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily identify that. A nine-year-old is going to identify that very easily, but that's where you're seeing it in the overwhelm, in the meltdowns, the mood explosions. Um, and I think with, with, uh, the autism part, that's where it's a, a more significant overwhelm, too much sensory stimulations. I, oh, I don't want to go to the mall because there's way too much going on. Uh, yeah. I, well, and I think what we don't, we don't give enough credit to when you look at executive function is the role of energy management. So, Mm. um, and whether it's, you know, and whether ASD and ADHD are completely separate or whether they're just a continuation of the spectrum is, is a whole other debate, which I don't want to go into, but, but there is something about the executive function impact of regulating your energy, of managing your energy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see it a lot in the ADHD space, you know, people who, whose energy comes and goes and. Sometimes they're if they need something to stay engaged, and otherwise their head's on the table. Um, but the mm-hmm. same mm-hmm. is true Just similarly similar. for people with ASD that it takes a lot of energy to to be around a lot of people or to be in a. Yeah, in a yeah. I mean, my Trying kids will say to me, "Peopling, mom, peopling, peopling's hard." You know, it's exhausting, mm-hmm. and and it's one thing to navigate it if you're neurotypical or if you have kind of your, for lack of the better word, run-of-the-mill ADHD. But I think when you, when that moves into the space of autism, it takes longer to, to refill your cup. It it drains mm-hmm. your cup quickly and it takes quickly. longer to refill it. It takes longer to... Um, there's, there's a concept about where... spoons. Do you know what, about the spoon theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you run out of spoons faster. You run out of spoons faster. You have a thick, finite number of spoons, and and once they're gone, you got to replenish. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, maybe that speaks to some of the, the uh, I've got to be alone time, and whether it's I'm going to go read, I'm going to go escape into my 
room. Unfortunately, I think now I've got to escape on to my screen, my phone, the screen, the games, uh, and then get into the whole social media thing, which is another big tangle of people and emotions that overwhelm. Yeah. Well, and it's also, uh, it's also a way that I think makes socializing easier for people in the mm -hmm. spectrum. Right. If I can do it through the technology, it takes away a whole energetic drain and allows right. me to be social to without. Yeah. I don't have to read cues and people and get distracted by color of their shirt or whatever. Exactly. Uh, does it, it, uh, and I'm thinking to some of the boys and men I've seen with uh, kind of. It might be said some of more the typical autism high um, interest in one thing, but then it shifts. One, I was ten, I think. Mom said two months ago I couldn't walk down the aisle that had candles in it because he'd want to. He he didn't want to light them. He'd want to. He just wanted the candles. And now it's Rubik's cube, but I don't think he stopped playing with a Rubik's Cube the whole time we were talking. And, uh, you know, he'd mix it up, and I'd say, okay, let's see. And but only know less than a minute he'd have it solved. Yeah. I had um, And, <laughs> yeah, I gave up very quickly on those. Um, but it, that high intensity now, what I've seen in someone who was a programmer in his mid-20s, he could figure out networks and a different way and more efficient way to have a networks communicate and the level of detail was right. way beyond what even his coworkers could understand and what showed up to him is you know his manager would say how's it going what are you finding and he could get back a five-page email that has every single little detail in it and he really just wanted to know it's going along okay. So yeah, that need, need to explain the detail, does that show up in girls with the, or I should say, is it evident in girls? The one it's a, it's example a, it's of It's a good some, question, and I, I don't know that I have the expertise to answer that. I didn't see it in this, you know, kind of the, yeah. the plural of, of, of uh, what is it? My husband of anecdote is data. So I have a very limited, you know, tool that I'm looking at. Although I, when I look at it across our population and we have thousands of parents in our community, um, I don't see, I do see the interest in girls, but oftentimes the interest in girls is going to have somewhat of a more social application or wanting to have mm -hmm. a more social application. Um, but I don't know about the detail. I do believe that what we're probably seeing evolutionarily is, is that some of what we're seeing in terms of neurological, what we're calling diagnoses or conditions mm -hmm. now are really evolutionarily allowing us to adapt to this changing environment we're creating. But that's a whole one example that uh, one woman gave in, about her, she's in her probably 30s or 40s, diagnosed, I think, when she's in her early 30s. 
said that it didn't wasn't evident. And yes, I followed the you know TV show Friends like others did, but I could tell you who did what in every single episode, who the guests were in every single exactly. episode for three years in a row. That level of detail, where okay, you watch Friends, yeah, and you talk about whatever happened, but she could go through all of those, or maybe boys, though I'm sure girls can do it with some sports, is going. All the players, the statistics, 10 teams, who was traded, what this is going to implications, just that depth of knowledge that unless you asked, well, you know about, uh, I'd say football, because my son's into football, it's so live, but the real football, not American football, soccer, um, and following, yeah, Premier League, but also the Liga and the Bundesliga, three other leagues and knowing details of players and style of play and everything else, that's yeah. a, a different level of detail. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and it's easy to mask. And that's part of what we see with girls. Mm-hmm. They mask better than boys because mm-hmm. girls have been trained socially, If whether they're assigned female at birth or continue to be to see themselves as uh, to identify as female, they've been conditioned and trained to be pleasers, to be societally appropriate, to be respectful, to be polite. There's a lot of mm-hmm. what happens in girls' conditioning, which is actually um, probably supportive and helpful for girls on the spectrum, uh, but also teaches them, somewhat might argue, teaches them to mask and to be less connected to themselves. And that's, a, again, it's a whole then, other conversation about the benefit or not of mm-hmm. Um And I'd, I'd wonder whether, um, and I want to explore this more at future podcasts, uh, also whether you talk about the self-blame, uh, whether then that turns into shame because I'm not living up to this why I behaved uh, be socially appropriate. I can't do that. I should. And anytime I hear someone say should, I said, I would think, okay, we've got some shame going on there. Yeah. And well, should a, is about another time. Right. And kind um, of it's about expectations you're not meeting, but you're supposed to because you're being a good girl, whatever. Exactly. And I think kids in age three, four, five, six, take on, I'm not doing it, therefore I'm a bad person, rather than my behavior isn't appropriate. It's I'm not inside. And that's where the shame part comes in. And I, I agree completely. And I, I think I see it in both ADHD and autism, that there's this, yeah. this what, what I call the blame and shame cycle that that happens mm-hmm. and um and a big part of supporting adults with these issues especially when they're diagnosed as adults um mm-hmm. is is be- first beginning to to kind of ferret out and eradicate that shame and blame cycle and to yeah. shed some light yeah. on it because until you can bring people to some level of self-acceptance you can't mm-hmm. really move them mm-hmm. through to a process of problem solving because because they're going to be stuck in that blame and shame cycle. 
But yeah, I, yeah. I think shame has so much to do with how difficult it is to manage a lot of these issues. I am too ashamed and embarrassed to fill in the blank, to ask for help, mm-hmm. to do it differently, to admit that I did it wrong, to, to you know, to, yeah. to try it again because yeah. I'm afraid I won't get there. There's a lot of, a lot of ways it shows up. And um, I think it's maybe part of ADHD as well as uh, autism and number of people have both. But exactly. the uh, perfectionism, um, and I see that more in girls, high school, middle school, but certainly high school, they are bound and determined they're going to finish the homework. And if they get everything exactly right, then they can't be criticized. Yeah. And so or, they end up sleep deprived. Conversely, and my daughter said to me, and I'll never forget it, don't you see, Mom, if I haven't done it, I haven't done it wrong. So you've mm-hmm. got that other side of perfectionism that shows up as actually yeah. what we would look at as, well, they don't care. Well, it's not that they don't yeah. care. Yeah, yeah. Actually. It's yeah, maybe so I've not picked up that so much, but the uh, stay up till 1 o'clock. Yep. And Those then have the to get up at 5.30 or 6. And high achievers and drive for themselves. And, of course, they have good grades. So, oh, well, you don't and have problems. You've got great grades. And boys give up at 7.30 and go play video games. So the grades are down. Oh, what's going on? And that gets investigated. And of course, that's a big generalization. But the trend, my experience has been girls are the perfectionists. Some but boys I, are. I guess maybe. what I'm saying is that I think that there's more perfectionism than we realize that perfectionism mm-hmm. can no, manifest as high achievement. It can it's, also it's, manifest as extremely a, low achievement. Yeah, escape. Yeah. Um, escape failure by not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the most telling so, things they ever said to me, and I remember it now almost 15 years later. So what's the approach to helping people with, and girls with, Asperger's, autism, high-factioning, and how does it differ if they don't have ADHD? Or do you see more people that have both? I was going to say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I can speak to how it's different if they don't have ADHD, because a, a, there's a high correlation mm-hmm. between ASD and ADHD. Oh, yeah. Like extremely high, high way co-occurring. higher than we ever expected. Um. One of the things that jumps out at me that I began to notice in this is not just what are we seeing in the kids, but what are we seeing in the parents? So the other warning signs I would, I would look for are like, how do we, what are we looking for when the, in the parents experience and how do we use that as a sign to help us support the kid? Because what we know Mm -hmm. about treatment for these kids, whether it's ADHD or ASD is that a part of the treatment, one of the first lines of treatment is to support the parent, to give the parent skill support understanding so that they can understand what they're dealing with so they can help their kid learn to manage it. And talk about energy drain, the amount of energy and parents just put in an incredible amount of time and energy, and then they're they're wiped out, and it strains their relationship. Yes, whichever parent is kind of the the support parent, right. 
Well, again, in my round, what I'm seeing is the parent who becomes the codependent, right, is drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started looking at the families, what they all had in common, they all had histories of mental health differences in their families. Um, mm-hmm. Several of them had had siblings who had not ended up functioning successfully as adults. Um, mm-hmm. Again, they sought support at really early ages for their kids, and they've typically seen multiple providers and maybe tried lots of different approaches that that weren't Mm -hmm. as effective Mm -hmm. as they needed to be. Universally, these parents are kind of on the edge. They're like ready. They're they're just at the edge of their own breakdown or burnout. They know that something's missing. They're seeking clarity. They have begun to tolerate extremely disrespectful behaviors. They've, yes, they've yes. reached the point of setting little or no limits or expectations for their kid. And they can't get any break because the parent, the child is obsessively attached. So the parents and, are, are reaching an end point. Mm-hmm. And a parent, one or both, can have ADHD also. Yes. Or also be. Or, or anxiety or OCD or, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly going to be anxiety there, but ADHD, okay, they aren't organized and they have a hard time sticking with routines and they're parenting a child who does best if everything's routine and it's a surprise. (laughs) 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 Because there's more anxiety if it's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's a so tough that's blend. this other factor that's happening and and I think an indicator for providers is if you've got a parent that's at their wits end it uh-huh. may be just that the parent has ADHD and I say just but that the parent uh-huh. is undiagnosed and untreated that's for sure possible but it may be that that there is enough complexity happening there that hasn't been identified and supported that the parent just that the parent needs more and mm-hmm. what I found with all of these parents is that being in a space in our community and with me normalizing what was normal for, for atypical kids and then beginning to be able to call out what wasn't to say, you know, that really does uh, mean, suggest that there's something else going on. That does invite me mm-hmm. to say, let's do a reevaluation. That was really affirming for them to have somebody else mm-hmm. who understands mm-hmm. complex issues to be able to say, no, this is, this needs some attention. And many times yeah, it's the first time different. that any provider has ever said to them, uh, no, you, I'm listening to you. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Um, because there's mm-hmm. this way when you've gone from provider to provider to provider, they, they kind of make us parents feel like, um, we're the neurotic one with some, you know, we just need to chill out. But you don't and, know what it's like when your kid's having these eruptions and explosions, right. you know, and, and from the their provider side, havoc. yeah, the uh, either, and I think one of the problems in primary care and our whole medical care non-system is the time that a primary care provider has to spend is okay. Usually it's to get 15 minute appointments yeah. and to say, okay, come back and see me next week. Well, next week is five weeks from now because their schedule's full. Um, so there isn't the continuity 
and maybe and, okay come back but someone else is covering and the provider may reach the point of saying i really don't know what's going on or say worse say well you know it's just this um if you were better parents it would work or yep, uh, there's obviously you need these three medicines for your anxiety and whatever and that should do it so parents know well no it's not going to do it it hasn't before they go see another one so that's, that's exactly where there's this bouncing around well, and then the other thing is, so there's not enough time. The parent wants to maximize the time they have, so they're not telling the provider what their experience is because they don't think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want to waste the time because they got to get to the solution for the kid. And so, and right. they're embarrassed and back to the shame cycle. So the parents are embarrassed and they don't want to tell their provider that the kid's thrown everything out of their bedroom and broken everything in the living room. They don't want to tell them Mm -hmm. that because that's embarrassing. And that feels like what they're going to hear is, well, you're not a very good parent, are you? Yeah, you aren't setting the right limits and boundaries. And so if you just did that, they would learn to do it differently. And that's, I think, the the And it's hard not to buy into that trope. Yeah. You've done everything the experts tell you to do when it's not working. And so part of the reason I do what I do is because I read all the books and I did everything the experts tell me to do and it didn't work. And and, and I that's mm-hmm. why I wrote the essential guide. It was like I wanted a parenting book for kids who weren't so typical. Because mm-hmm. the parenting books that were written for neurotypical kids did not work for me and my kids. Yeah. And it just yeah. made me feel yeah. more shame and made me feel more worried about my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It turns out my kids so are pretty the, amazing, <laughs> you know? I just yeah, have to, get and to it, help them get through it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's always struck me uh, as central to autism and went on the spectrum is anxiety is such a huge, huge thing there. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, you can speculate, yes, it comes because you know you're going to have problems in this social situation or um, I don't I don't know how to act when I don't know what the routine is so no I don't want to all of a sudden we have to stop by the grocery store but no we usually go from school with the right to home and I have a snack um, and and so that can be part of the anxiety but that's such a a strong part that Sometimes it needs to be addressed separately. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure it's a co-occurring disorder so much as it's part of that. And yes, sometimes anxiety medication, some supplements help anxiety enough. Does the anxiety show up differently in girls than it does in boys? Um, in some ways, I think it does in, in the attachment pieces. Um, and I agree with you. I, I used to say, and this is going back maybe 10, 15 years, we, there's, a, there's a representation of, um, of autism called PDA, demand avoidance, which I identified mm-hmm. yeah. in one of my kids probably 13, 15 years ago. Um, and it just, it's a diagnosis that doesn't exist in the U.S., but it does in, the, in Europe and then Australia. Hmm. Um, and it's beginning to come to, the, to this country. We're seeing more about it. And it came out of autism research in England. And I remember when it first started, 
looking at it and having a conversation with my husband saying, you know, I wonder if 20 years from now we're going to figure out that autism and, and is an anxiety based disorder. And uh, I would. And it wouldn't surprise me. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I, you know, when you talk to a psychiatrist who understands the neurology of it way better than I do, they will say no. And I, and I lead into their expertise because I don't know. But yeah. there is a correlation that is so strong that uh, I, I just don't think you can deny. I mean, I, I, was, I was actually with a, a group of, of a psychiatrists and neuropsychs the other day, last week, and I asked, have you ever seen autism without anxiety. And, um, and one of them said, yeah, I've seen it. It's not common, but I've seen it. But typically yeah, I, they go hand in hand because, mm -hmm. you know, and I always say, if you can't get yourself to do what the world expects you to do, and whether that's ADHD or autism, it's going to make mm -hmm. you anxious. And over time, yeah, because you're it's going to make supposed you to be able to do that. That's right. Yeah. And that's the message you get where well, you should be able to do that um, exactly. at your age. Or your, um, but with why don't girls, you? With girls, Whatever I think there's, there's more, the anxiety manifests itself more in an attachment or connection to the parent, uh, to a parent, and less mm -hmm. that resistance or avoidance or isolation from. So boys are more likely yeah. to withdraw. In and girls are likely more likely to lean in and you know hold a kid's hold a mom's leg. That's, yeah, that, and that's a I think of rapid a, a gross overgeneralization. Yeah. but and I think of boys are their anxiety. They're more likely to go into the meltdown, the explosive. I don't know how to deal with it, and it's either the meltdown part or self-blame and then okay i'm just going to shut that out of my world and not pay attention to it yeah uh, i i nope that's no longer part of what i think i've I refuse to let myself do that so yeah people kind of they trap themselves in boxes because they have all these things they can't do because no that's too hard to deal with or i failed once um, therefore, I never want to do it again. Yep. Or I failed, and it hurts so much. Yes. I don't know what to do with that hurt, and I don't want to feel that hurt anymore. So I won't do the thing that risks being hurt like that. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, which yes. and maybe right it that takes some time to have had enough experiences where that happens. So it may be someone in their 20s and 30s and i'm i'm not sure how to get at that in terms of you know, are the things you used to like to do that you don't allow yourself to do now i'm not sure what question i would ask uh, to get at that well i think that but i mean it, you're right on target which is it's it's a masking of pain it's an avoidance of pain um, one mm -hmm. of the one of the kids, you know, when I was doing this this uh, presentation for Absard, um, one of the the things one of these these girls said, and she was young, she was like nine years old, was and she had she was hospitalized for a suicide attempt, and she said, I didn't really want to kill myself, I just wanted the pain to stop. Yeah, that was a yeah. nine year old. I just wanted the oh, pain boy. to stop. Right. Yeah. 
So, so there is a way, and maybe because of girls are invited to be with emotions differently than boys, maybe girls are able to mm -hmm. express that or connect to it or communicate it sooner or, or differently than boys may be. But I think the, the experience so, is all the same. They, there's a, a, an experience of, of feeling pain in being in an environment and being surrounded by the expectations of environment and not knowing how to navigate that pain productively. Yeah, and being somehow chastised or run afoul of usual societal expectations, whether it's with uh, relationships girl with boy, boy with girl, as far as I know cross the line because of Richard Singer thought it would be as hell that hurt too much to be rejected. So I'm never going to do that again. Um, and so, no, I don't go well, out and, with girls. I don't think. And building a frustration tolerance is really hard for, for both ADHD and, and autism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because we, when there's limited tolerance for frustration and mistake and disappointment, and then you add the common experience of of, of having more frequent disappointment and mistake. Mm -hmm. At some point, yeah. the way to avoid it is to just not try. Just not do it. Now, one of the things you mentioned, I think it may have been before we uh, started on the recording, um, was helping providers, clinicians, uh, under uh, know what to ask what kinds of questions mm -hmm. to ask because this is now coming out and or is becoming more evident that yeah this is a a real issue and there are kids and adults that something's not right um how does a clinician get at that whether it's suspect something's question. not right or a parent comes in and says you know, something's just missing here that, that there's could there be anything more i think that's a really important question and, and that i think one of the things that's been missing in this dialogue i, I don't mean ours but generally is is what mm -hmm. are, what do we need to be guiding providers to be looking for and asking you know, and so part of what I was trying to identify by saying, what do these very complex kids look like? What do the parents look mm -hmm. like? So to really asking more questions about what the parents' experience is. But what I think parents need from providers is they need providers to be looking for these signs of very complex kids and looking and understanding that there may be a more nuanced diagnosis, particularly for kids who were initially diagnosed before 2013. Because in 2013, mm -hmm. the DSM changed. Before, prior to 2013, a provider could not mm -hmm. diagnose a child with both ADHD and autism. They had to choose. Yeah. If, if it's this, then it can't be that. Yeah, so, which so there is, is there's, absurd, there's right. an entire generation of that we need to be looking at. Anybody who was originally identified before 2013 is to look for some more nuance and diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Ask parent, ask about questions about parenting challenges and look for the yeah, parents experience, right? Mm -hmm. Look for those outliers. Um, 
you know, set appropriate expectations for the for the parents. Let them know that there's not an easy fix, that they're not alone, that this is a long term journey, and that they deserve support in this journey. That they shouldn't do this. Yeah. Um, which and means encourage the- parents to get behavior management training, which is part of recommended treatment for these kids, including teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I've had providers yeah, say yeah. to me, well, if it's really bad, I refer them to, to training. No, don't wait till it's really bad. They're, they're, right, as as right. That's the idea is to pre- prevent that really bad. Um, right. Yeah, and I think even something as simple as see that you've been to, how many is it, four different people, and and you're still something's wrong, you're great at persistence you obviously really love and value your child it's got to be very difficult to value a child who's throwing temper tantrums or doesn't want to uh, have friends doesn't want to go do anything with other families like your older son does you're doing an amazing job keeping after trying to come up with what's what's going on Yes, slow down and acknowledge the parent because the parent needs Mm -hmm. that acknowledgement a lot, like so much. And and I think a lot of times in in our community, what we hear from parents is, this is the first time I've ever felt like I'm not alone. It's the first time I've ever felt like I'm not crazy for having the experiences. I mean, other people have this too. I had no idea. Yeah. And that, mm-hmm. that if, if you can, even if you don't know what the experience is to say, you're not the only parent going through this. And when you get some support for yourself, it will help your kid uh, explain to parents yeah. that they need more than information. They need support because yeah, they some do, knowledgeable. The research shows us they need more than information. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the last yeah. thing I would say to providers is stop worrying about offending parents and and encourage them to get the training they need because of providers don't want to embarrass parents by suggesting parent training when in fact yeah, that's what they yeah. need most. Yeah, and and what I've found, I mean, I'll read in some uh, initial studies of such and such an approach and there's been grant funding support and they have it behavioral team at the clinic, etc. Well, there isn't a behavioral team in most primary care offices, even in now 70% of primary care offices are owned by hospitals or other corporations. They may have psychologists in that network, but they aren't right there. They can't say, let's go down the hall and and get you lined up or They don't have the parenting. So I can say, yeah, a parenting program would be a great idea. How do you find it as a clinician? That's where Uh we come in. That's why we're virtual. Um, Yeah. And whether it's us or someplace else, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but, but these parents need support. And if, if Mm -hmm. COVID taught us anything, it's that it doesn't have to be in person. For a long time, we had provider yes. that says it has to be in person. We know we've been yeah. doing this for a dozen years that that parents can get effective support virtually through a community of peers online. Mm-hmm. Just like we were talking about, kids can connect socially online. Parents can connect and get support mm-hmm. virtually. Um, 
And that is, a, and it's more and affordable. It's more accessible. It works better in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And someone in Seattle can work with you in Georgia. Yeah. And it works fine. Uh, as long as the technology supports us, that, that's the, the trick. But it is face-to-face, so you can read facial expressions. You can uh, get the whole different dimension than trying to do it on telephone. I think when technology wasn't there to be able to support the virtual stuff on the phone, you can't, uh, can't really uh, work with it. And I think you're absolutely right. COVID has helped us see that, um, yes, it works doing it virtually. And while there's technologic challenge, and uh, I always say with technology, and maybe it's with much of life as well, it's knowing workarounds. Um, yeah, I've been doing virtual business even before COVID, and we walked in one day and my record system, which coordinates the virtual visits within it, you couldn't access that part of the system. It just wasn't there. And I had a whole morning of patience. I thought, oh, can we do that on Zoom? So I always set up a Zoom meeting to go for four hours. So it's available if any patient can't connect either home technology or our whole system is that. So, yeah, we got to get creative and we um, live in a really creative yeah. world. So there are a lot of ways that we can get the training and the support and the and the coaching that we as parents mm-hmm. need if we're willing to ask for it and if providers are, are willing to encourage it. Because the truth is that until a provider says this is part of your child's treatment, the parent actually and we've done some research on this in our community. Um, the parent tends to see parent training or parent intervention as a luxury. They see it as an uh, indulgence for themselves. Why should I focus on me if my kid's the one with the problem? When in fact, we know that if you focus on you, you'll help begin to learn how to help your kid navigate the yeah. challenge. But it seems counterintuitive to parents and said so they really need providers to be saying to them, it's part of your kid's treatment. Yes, this mm-hmm. is recommended. But that they, put on they, your they only hear it about 30% of the time. Their, yeah. Yeah. So they, it's unfortunate. The analogy of put on your own oxygen mask exactly. um, before you put your child's on. You can help your child best if you're in good shape and taking care of yourself. Well, and I might, I might augment that by saying, put on your oxygen mask and not only does it have oxygen, but it's got fuel and food and water and energy and everything in it to really boost you. It's not just survival. It's more than that. And I, I can almost hear many parents almost. And where am I I supposed to find the time to do that? Right. I can't do it. Yeah. I know. And I don't think there's any role in society at all that's more challenging than being a mother, a wife, and having a job. (laughs) You can't do all of them as well as you want to. Hard. Um, And so... Here's um, what I will tell you. Yes. Here's what I will tell you, is that I hear this from clients all the time. I didn't think I had the time 
And what happened was that I ended up having more time. Because yeah, when you start there's less to navigate struggle, these there's issues, less energy drain. There's less mm-hmm. energy drain. And so you actually end up with more time, more space, more freedom. Um, in our realm, there's a lot of emphasis on self, you know, taking care of yourself as a parent. So all of a sudden parents are taking care of themselves. Somebody will be in a group and they'll come in three months later and it's like, this is the first time I've gotten a haircut in three years. And, you know, it's yes, like, I was able to go do something else. Yeah. yeah. And that's powerful because that's what it takes for oh, yeah. us to, to go the distance. Because, you know, we, we talk about it at Impact in terms of the marathon view. You're in this for the long haul. And if you're running a marathon, not that I'm a marathoner, not. But if I know that people who run marathons, you have to make sure you get water breaks. You have to keep getting nutrition. You have to, you know, there are things you do to prepare for a marathon. You don't just get up and walk a marathon. And the same is true for parenting complex kids. This is a marathon and you got to pace yourself and you got to nourish yourself and take care of yourself in the process. Well, I think uh, we need to break. I'm sure we could keep talking for another hour or more. There are all kinds of nuances and things that are there. But the, the kind of takeaways that I see is for a clinician, to support parents who come in and they're at their wit's end. They've seen three other people. Um, and also to believe parents who say there's something else that's just not right. They've, you know, they created the ADHD appropriately. They're getting appropriate help with learning disability, but something doesn't fit. Parents know their children a lot better than you do, doctor. (laughs) Believe that they know something about them. And and I think to let parents know you aren't the only one, that there is help and getting support for yourself is one of the best ways you can support your child. Yeah, for sure. That's helpful. Well, my guest today has been Elaine Taylor Klaus, founder of Impact Parents and author of one of the better books on parenting complex child or not, The Essential Guide to Parenting Complex Kids. And every child's complex and many of them are more complex and more challenging for parents and people supporting them. So thanks for listening. This is Dr. David Pomeroy on ADHD Focus, and I hope you'll join us again for another time.